Thanks, Jaden. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody here in person. Uh, excited for those of you who are engaging with us online. Glad that you're with us this morning. If you're online, if you want to just leave a comment, put something on there in the chat just so that we know you're with us. I think Pastor Jaden's going to be on the chat this morning so you can talk to her. Talk to her about being technologically challenged. She needs some encouragement. Uh, we're going to continue uh, our series that we've been doing through the summer as we've been going through the B attitudes that are found in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to move to the middle here and hopefully not lose everything. Matthew chapter 5. This morning we're going to be uh, looking at Matthew 5, 8. But before we do, <clears throat> let's just do a little bit of a rewind. And let's go to the beginning of that chapter, verses 1 and 2. As I just want us to have a refresher of why we're studying and what this is about as we go through the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 1 and 2 says this. And seeing the multitudes, he, meaning Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So I want to pull two things out really quick to help set up the platform for these Beatitudes we're talking about through the summer. Two things we notice in these verses about Jesus, as these verses might not seem important to you, but two things I want to pull out. Number one, the setting that Jesus chose for this sermon. If you've been in church for a while, you're probably familiar. This is called the Sermon on the... Bam! Sermon on the Mount. Jesus chose a mountainside to preach this sermon. He wasn't in a synagogue, he wasn't in a church, but Jesus chose a mountainside to preach this, what is called the most famous sermon in history. Now, for those of you who are familiar with a little bit of Old Testament history, can you think of any other time that God communicated with his people on a mountain? Anybody? So, yeah, shout it out. Moses, right. When, when the, when the uh, Old Testament... Israelites were given the first commandments, the Ten Commandments from God, the law of God. This was given again on a mountain. So here we have Jesus now. In your Bible, you have an Old Testament and a New Testament. Essentially, a new covenant, a new agreement with God through Christ. And Jesus is now giving the new law that is going to rule for his people. No longer the Old Testament. We have a new mountain and God's giving this new law to his people. So that's the first thing. The setting is on a mountain. The second thing we see is that Jesus, it says specifically here, Jesus sat down and began to teach them. Now, why would this New Testament author spend the extra little bit of time to make sure that he specified that? Well, I, I want to clue you into something. See, it, can you imagine trying to speak to a large group of people? Even here today, when I have the... the uh, the add-on of having a microphone and speakers so you can hear my voice, I'm still standing up to be able to talk to you. But imagine being outside with hundreds, possibly thousands of people listening. You would think that you would stand up on a rock, move around, move your arms, yell, and get people to listen to you. But it says that Jesus sat down. We're partway through the summer. How many this morning have children or are kids? Put up your hands if you either have children or are a kid, okay? So through this point in the summer, it's amazing. Through the school year, we're always so excited, can't wait for summer. And then it takes about three days to hear those two words that parents dread more than any other. I'm 
bored. How many parents have heard that already this summer? I'm bored. The worst words you can hear, but that's where the summer is the best because that's where you have to get creative and make stuff up. So whether that's with your friends who live on your street or if you have siblings with your siblings. I was the third of four kids. I had two older sisters and a younger brother. Me and my younger brother loved playing sports. We loved making up games. You know, you, you play kingdoms and you fight swords and you wrestle. But I had a sister who did not like those things. And parents, you probably know this. In every family, there is a boss. There are lots of opinions and lots of desires, but usually within a sibling cohort, there is one child who tends to take the crown of the boss. They are the bossy kid. New parents know that you have a bossy kid, right? Okay, feel free to call it out. Carla, shout it out. All right. My sister was the bossy kid in my family. And she, we wanted to play other things, but do you know what we always ended up playing in the summer? House, where she was the parent and forced us to eat made-up food like boiled water with grass. Or court, where you had to settle agreements and she was the judge, right? We all know that person that uses power to try and bully and push people over. Jesus was anything but that. We see here that Jesus chooses to sit. He sat down to teach the people. Throughout the New Testament, one of the things that is often spoken about Jesus as people came and heard him teach was how he didn't speak just with power, but Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus had no need to bully, no need to puff himself out because Jesus knew exactly who he was. He sat down as if a king sitting on his throne, now giving the new rules to his kingdom. The Beatitudes are Jesus' instructions for the members of his new kingdom. And for every one of these eight Beatitudes that we've been going through, there is first a responsibility, and then correspondingly, if you follow it, a blessing that comes with it. So this brings us to our verse this morning that we're going to look into. Matthew 5, 8, if you want to read it with me. It says this, Blessed or happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear from you, to receive from you. And I pray for those in this place, for those who are watching this online, May we experience you in this time right now. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. All right. So let's break this verse down. Blessed are the pure in heart. Interesting. As Jesus lays out the, the, the rules for his new kingdom, one of the first things we see is that Jesus' concern is not simply about the behavior of his adherents, about the members of his kingdom. Because Jesus' passion is not about changing your behavior. It's not blessed are those who look good on the outside, those who say the right things or don't overtly break too many rules. Jesus is not simply concerned about the superficial cleanup of our behaviors. Jesus is concerned with the heart. Now, maybe some of you have had a different impression of Christianity. Perhaps this is your first Sunday coming to a church in a long time or ever. 
Or maybe you're listening online and this is the first time and you just felt tweaked. You wanted to see what this church thing was about. And your impression of Christianity is anything but this. Your impression of Christianity is that it's superficial and it's hypocritical. Because you've seen people who are exactly that. Just people trying to force you to behave in a certain way and manipulate you. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do that. Really only concerned about looking good on the outside. How many of you were alive and present and can remember the early 1990s? You're all lying. Okay. Most of us. Okay. Don't make me feel alone here. All right, the early 1990s, not exactly the greatest era of music when you rewind. There's Vanilla Ice, MC Hammer. But there was a group in the early 90s. How many of you can remember a group by the name of Millie? Vanilli, yes, Millie Vanilli. Okay, Wanda loved them. For those of you who aren't familiar, maybe you weren't around and you're like, what on earth is he talking about? Millie Vanilli was a group out of Germany. Um, Manfred, I don't know them being German. I don't know if you were really into Millie Vanilli in the 90s. <laughs> Germany does not have a good reputation. Any of you who are German, you need to talk to me because the only thing I know about German music is I know polka, I know Millie Vanilli, and I know they like listening to David Hasselhoff. That's it. So anybody from Germany, please fill me in if there's other musical genres available. But they were from Germany, and they actually won a Grammy. These guys won a Grammy, but it was one of the greatest cases of fraud in history. They actually never sang on their album. It was other people who sang, and they lip-synced all their performances and pretend that it was them who sang on the album. They were both models and essentially just sold this group. Of course, eventually this came out. It all fell apart. But they acted, and they played a role. Sometimes that's what people view Christianity really being, and they think that that's what Jesus cares about, is that we essentially, as long as we play a role, we look on the outside okay, that's really all that matters. That's not at all what Jesus is focused on here. The aim of Jesus is not to reform the manners of society and culture or an individual, but to change the actual hearts of sinners like you and me. So, for example, Jesus would not be satisfied with a society that simply said no one committed adultery. As great as that is, that there was no actual adultery committed. But we see in the New Testament that Jesus goes beyond that. In Matthew 5, 27, 28, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is concerned about so much more than simply modifying others' behavior. Jesus wants deep transformation. He wants a pure heart. So what exactly is a pure heart? What does the Bible mean when it talks about the heart? Usually when the heart is referred to throughout the Bible, it can be metaphorically referring to three different things. I'll mention these really quickly. The first is this, your emotions. So John 14.1 is an example. Do not let your hearts be troubled. The second thing is your intellect. This is Mark 2 verse 8. Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Or Hebrews 4.12 states that God is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
And then finally, the third thing, I like how Warren Wearsby summarizes and, and phrases this and how the heart can be represented in the Bible. He calls it the volitional function of the will or the process by which an individual decides on and commits to a particular course of action. Daniel 1 verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. So put simply, the heart can be what you feel, what you think, and the motivation behind what you do. The heart is what you are. In the secrecy of your thoughts and feelings when no one else but God knows. It is the master control area of your life. And it is here that salvation is experienced. God is passionate about your heart. As 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, man looks at the outward appearance, which is why so often we structure that. It's why it's such a slippery slope for those who practice religion to fall into just doing practices that make it look like our lives is together, to make it look like we're holy, to make it look like we're disciplined and we're different. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So why does God care about the heart? Why is Jesus speaking to this? Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. Why? For everything, everything you do flows from it. Just like your physical heart pumps blood to every organ in your body and with that gives nutrients that are needed for life and sustaining life. Spiritually, your heart is where everything outflows from. If you thought about it this way, imagine you went to a hospital room and someone who was dying from cancer was in their hospital bed. You looked at them, they were sickly and pale, hooked up to machines. Clearly, life was slipping away. You had a professional makeup artist come in, though, and they, they colored all their skin so it brought vibrancy back, back to life. It made them look healthy again. They made them look alive. They perked up their eyes. They made them look like they were healthy. Yet the cancer was still inside, killing their body. Even so, God doesn't simply want to cover up the cancer of your life and your soul just to make the exterior look good. God wants to free you into your calling and completely transform you into the life he's made you to live. Jesus taught that what is inside of you is eventually what will come out of you. So he doesn't simply focus on the exterior, the behaviors of your life. Matthew 15, 19, these are Jesus' words. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Again, for a picture for our minds, picture yourself you're on a beautiful mountain lake in the middle of the lake in a canoe. And suddenly you notice that you have holes in the canoe and you're taking on water. You're a ways from shore. What do you do? But there's someone who's able to help nearby and they throw you a bucket. That's not going to get you far. 
Ultimately, what you need to do is you need to repair the holes in your boat so that you don't sink. You need to plug them. You need to fix them. Some of us have holes in our boat. Your life is consistently taking on water. Something has gotten into your heart and your life is being sabotaged by it. Now you can try to blame God. You can do that all you want. But the truth is, is that it's within you. There's a chasm and a rottenness that's sabotaging right within your own heart and soul. The first step towards receiving the promise of this beatitude, to see God, is admitting first that there's a hole in the boat. That my heart is sinful and that I cannot see God unless my heart is changed. God calls us. Jesus in his new kingdom says that we are blessed and we will see God if we have not just a heart, but a pure heart. Now this word for pure has two meanings. The first is to be clean. This word that's used here is the English word cathartic comes from this original Greek word. Now cathartic is an ancient used to cleanse a physical system. Or on a psychiatric level, cathartic is an emotional cleansing of an individual. First John 1.7 says this, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, cleanses us from all sin. A pure heart is a clean heart. The second meaning of this word is to be unmixed, meaning to be singularly focused and geared. No one can ever truly see God if their heart is between God, divided between God and other desires in this world, other things themselves. It's like if I offered you on a hot day this bottle of water, one of these nice mid-30 days that we've had in the summer, and you've been outside for several hours. And I offer you this drink of water. Jeff, I'm going to offer you some refreshing water. I'm sure you would like some. Now, there's only, it's only 2% poison and 1% fecal matter. But that's such a small minority of what's actually in the water. Most of it is 100% pure. Would you like some water? No? Pure. You can't have, God, my life is for you. I'm all for you. I'm 100% for you, but not this part. Pure is only 100%. It is unmixed. It is undivided. If you've been in church for a long time, you've heard this verse, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. If you are wanting to see God in your life, your heart can't have a dual allegiance. You can't simply add a little bit of Jesus onto your spiritual salad. You can't say, Jesus, you get this part of my life, but this part I'm in control of. 
Those who pretend to be followers of Jesus but serve two masters, listen to this church. Because I know that there are some who are hearing this today. And I don't say this from a perch as if I'm superior to you. I'm saying this because it's true. And you need to come to that first step of admitting it. Those of us who serve two masters eventually become shallow and hollow inside. Your surface religious practices never actually reach your heart. You are like the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus called out relentlessly in his life on earth. Because you do practices to be seen and practices to somehow earn, but your heart has in no way been transformed and changed by the Holy Spirit. And with that, the reality of constantly playing pretend and trying to act, you get tired of playing the part and your life is exhausting. You can imagine Millie Vanilli for years because it went multiple years. They were only super famous for a short while, but that lie went on. Can you imagine living that lie constantly? Constantly worrying about it coming out, constantly having to keep it up. Being pure in heart involves being unmixed as well as being clean. The basic idea is that of integrity, singleness of heart, as opposed to duplicity or divided heart. Now, so some of us, if we go, yeah, I get that, but again, we're looking at 95% of my life, I can do that. But 100% sounds impossible. When we invite Christ to forgive us our sins and lead our lives, he does more than merely wash away our sin. As amazing as that is. But the Bible tells us it goes beyond that. It says he gives us a new heart that wants to focus wholly on him. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this. I will give them a new heart to know me. Sorry, Ezekiel 36, 26, sorry. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. Finally, the words of Jesus, again, as part of his new commands, his new rulership for his new kingdom. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not 95, all of it. So we're to love God with all our hearts. Blessed are those who are pure of heart. Here's the promise and the blessing. For they shall see God. Seeing God is the highest possible joy that can be experienced. I don't know what your perception is of God. I don't know what your feeling is about it. I don't know if you believe that God is a cosmic bully and the idea of seeing God is petrifying to you. But seeing God is anything but punishment. For those who know him, it is the greatest joy that could possibly be experienced. I like how John Piper breaks down 
What does it mean to see God? And so I'm just going to steal from him because he does this so well. And really quickly, three things. What does it mean to see God? The first is this. It means to be admitted into his presence. It means to be admitted into his presence. Now, imagine you had to book an appointment with your dentist. Now, you book your appointment to see your dentist. Brian, if you went in to see your dentist and you sat in the office, would you be happy if they just sat there and the receptionist said, okay, and she spoke on the phone and said, this is what your dentist said, you can go home now. Brian's putting his thumbs up probably because he doesn't like the dentist. But if you have a sore tooth and you have to get it fixed, would you be happy with just sitting out in the waiting room? Of course not. Would you be happy if, if your daughter was allowed to go in and she talked to him and then he came and she came out and she could tell you what the dentist had to say and said, okay, I'll do it for him now? Probably not. We shall see God. You will be admitted into his presence, not his waiting room, not you will be allowed to hear about God and have someone else who's seen him firsthand and they'll tell you about God. But blessed are the pure in heart for they themselves will see God be admitted into the very throne room of God. When we receive Christ into our lives, even in this life, we have direct access to God, not through other people, but directly to him through the Holy Spirit. And in the life to come, we will be welcomed into his very throne room. To see God means we get to be admitted into his presence. The second thing is we get to be awestruck by his glory. We get to have a direct experience with the holiness of God. Seeing God means not only being admitted to his presence, but also being awestruck by a direct experience of the glory of God. If you've ever had a real, true encounter with God, the holiness of God, that doesn't leave you. There is an awness to God. You get a direct encounter with God and to be awestruck by his glory. Finally, number three, to see God means to be comforted by his grace. If God shows his face in your life, in my life, we are helped simply by being in his presence. And as 2 Corinthians 2 tells us, he is the God of all comfort. Some of you have been walking through such difficult challenges, and truthfully, there are no words that will comfort you. Some of you have spent hundreds and thousands of dollars on counselors, and there is nothing wrong. There are great people with giftings that have received those from God to be able to give good, wise counsel. But truthfully, it can't reach the depth of the pain and the hurt that you have. Because what you really need is you need an encounter with the God of all comfort. When Jesus promises the reward of seeing God, there are at least three things that are implied. We will be admitted to his presence, not just kept in the waiting room, not just expected to glean off of someone else's personal experience. 
we will be awestruck with a direct experience of his glory and we will be helped and comforted by his grace. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know where you're at today, but perhaps today is the first day that you've even heard that there's a God that cares to know you. Not only does he care to know you, but he gave his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you so that the sin in your life, the holes in your boat, the chasms in your heart, the stuff that has brought death and destruction in your life, he is able to both forgive and wipe clean and give you a new heart. And even in this life, you can experience it. And beyond this life, have eternal life reunited with God, the one that you were always meant to be united with. The Bible tells us that it's simply a matter of receiving the gift that God has already given. It is confessing with our mouth, believing with our hearts, that he is God. This morning, you can have that opportunity. Perhaps for some of us today, we need to be reminded because we've made that decision for Christ. But the truth is that idea of being pure in heart, if we are honest, we go, my heart is not pure. I've got some purity here and there's some parts that are 100% devoted to God, but there are parts in me that I know are not. We don't even have within us the capacity to give ourselves a pure heart. But we can turn to God, receive his forgiveness, and again, he gives us the ability to have a heart that wholly, solely desires him. I'm going to ask for those who are here present in person this morning, if you'll stand. So we're going to close in prayer. Just before we do, I want to read this passage. These are the words of David, Psalm 51. One to three. And I pray that these words, if you want to close your eyes, this will be part of our prayer. And this morning, if you find yourself in that boat, as I read these words, agree with them as your own to God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And renew a right spirit within me. God, thank you for the promise of the ability to be able to see you. It's something we yearn for and long for. And I pray for those this morning who have maybe never made that decision, those watching online, those in person today, God, that they could just simply make that confession, something like this. If that's you today, you can say a word similar to mine. Dear Jesus, I believe you are God. I want to be part of your new kingdom. Thank you for paying for my sin. 
I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive the new heart you have for me. And I want to live for your new kingdom. Help guide me. Help me to know you. And help me to live for you, I pray. God, help all of us today. Make our hearts clean and pure before you that we can bring you glory and make you known. Help us to see you today, to personally experience you. Lord, in our homes, tonight as we go to sleep, God, as we talk to you, as we pray, may we experience you. May we be awestruck by your glory. May we hear you. And God, may we experience the comfort that comes in your presence, I pray. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, say amen. Amen. amen.